to No Small Jobs, the podcast, uh, and thanks for listening in to what is going to be a very special episode, um, because I am Paul Newen, both your host and your guest. Surprise! Um, I've been thinking about doing this for a little while now, uh, having spoken to a number of people, both friends, family, and near complete strangers about their lives. I listened to their stories and listened to the lives they led, and I thought, I really want to tell mine. Um, you've been getting little bits and pieces of it throughout each interview, little bits of perspective about my life and about me, but I thought it was time I actually sat down and told you about me. The other, the other part of it is that one of the things I've learned as I've gotten older is that you can't get what you want unless you ask for it. And so this is me asking for your help. Uh, I'm new to all this. I'm new to the idea of podcasting and telling stories, but particularly self-promotion. I'm not very good at that at all. I've been very lucky to have things happen to me or to stumble across things, and and I'm grateful for it. I am. Um, but there are things that I want to for myself and for my life and my career that I don't know how to do it. So here's the thing. I, I have a story to tell and every every person I've interviewed has their own story to tell. But you can't just, you know, talk into the wind. No one's going to hear you if you just talk into the wind. So if you know people who work in employment, in careers, counseling in high schools, in university, let me know. Uh, I can be reached on email, uh, info at nosmalljobspod.com.au. Send me a message on Facebook, Twitter, whatever way you can get to me, get to me. Let me know, you know, be part of this experience. Help spread the word, not just because you love it, but because you see how it can be helpful. Because that was the point, you know, uh, I want to be helpful. I want this podcast to be useful to someone, to to help that 14-year-old like I was who was, as you'll learn soon enough, was convinced of a path that was not his. Um, and if I could have prevented it, it's always about prevention, not cure, you know? If you can prevent it, why wouldn't you? So have a listen to this podcast. If this can be inspiring to anyone, if you can help me out, that will be great. Um, let's do the plugs first though. Don't forget to listen to the previous episodes. Uh, plenty of excellent guests, uh, infectious disease consultants, hypnotherapists, occupational therapists, librarians, please listen to all of them. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My handle is at no small jobs pod. Uh, there is the website, nosmalljobspod.com.au, where there are the episodes up as well as reflections, uh, another place to get to know me. But hey, um, you don't have to read all those things. You can just listen to this one and that should be a pretty decent summary. So, this is my story. Um, I'm going to go back a little bit. My parents, are, well, I am Vietnamese Australian. My parents are from Vietnam. And they grew up in Saigon. So Saigon is what we now call Ho Chi Minh City. If you ever encounter someone who calls it Saigon, you'll know that they grew up in pre-war Vietnam and they lived in the South because no true Southern Vietnamese person calls it Ho Chi Minh City. They, uh, they were there after the war. So Vietnam War ended in 1975 and they didn't escape Vietnam until 1979. And so my mum told me 
that the four years uh, after the war finished was like watching your life erode before you. Um, her family, she said she was one of four siblings and sh- uh, her parents owned a shoe store in the city and another family moved in, started taking over their places, taking their things. Um, essentially, their life wasn't theirs anymore and so it forced them to escape. And I think for a lot of people who whose parents are like this, there's this refugee mentality. The idea that having witnessed or having experienced such great loss, and it's not just about loss of possessions, but it's a loss of identity, loss of autonomy. There is this feeling that they, they don't want to feel that again. So they work hard and they, they dedicate themselves to having that security once again. But then what happens to the next generation is that they're trying to prevent it. Aren't we all trying to just prevent our kids from suffering from our, um, our losses and our, exp- our negative experiences? So the refugee mentality that the second generation gets, your, your refugee Australians, is that everything you do needs to lead to security. So... My parents uh, were both GPs. My dad passed away when I was 14. Um, But when they came to Australia, their degrees weren't recognized. They had already finished medicine and were starting their training in Vietnam, but they came to Australia and they had a choice. They could either do something completely different, which, you know, a lot of refugees are still doing to this day, or they can start from scratch. And they did. They knew no English. But this is the days of Whitlam, so free education for everyone. They did their seven years at Melbourne Uni, um, worked hard and learned English all at the same time and opened their own clinic in a suburb called Springvale, which is a very intensely Vietnamese community here in Victoria. And they built a, a business from the ground up. So it was always explained to me when I was a kid that I would be a GP. Not that I must be a GP, not that I was being forced into it, that it was just going to happen. It was destiny that I would become a GP, I'll take over the family business and the business would perpetuate and it would just continue on forever and every generation would inherit it. And that that was just the end, you know. So I was a very obedient child, not so much anymore, but I was. And I did what I was told. Uh, whenever anyone asked, I said I would be a GP and everyone applauded me and, and, and told me what a good person I was. And, um, and so I just did it. I dedicated my entire education to becoming a GP. I took up all the right subjects. I worked really hard at uh, studying and spent all my time I didn't really have much of a social life, partly because of geography, partly because I knew what I had to do. And there was this fear of failure. I didn't want to be a failure. And it didn't help that, you know, type A nut jobs attract type A nut jobs. So all my friends were also wonderful, lovely, but also intensely competitive, intelligent nerds. Uh, And so constantly comparing uh, test scores was part of the lunchtime script it's just what we did uh it was it was it in part drove us to be better in part probably sent us into a bit of an anxiety spiral not that we knew what that was at that time um so i did that i i studied really hard but even then 
I I did my core subjects and I did French and political studies just because I liked it. Well, partly because of the marks because it got um, the the uh, the enter score got sort of you know scaled upwards, but um, but I did it because I liked it and I loved writing. Uh, I, English was one of my favorite subjects. I wasn't the greatest at it, but I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed writing stories. I enjoyed making up characters and making them do whatever I felt like doing and exploring different lives and different worlds. And I'm still doing that to this day. I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast is exploring other people's lives. But I'd never taken it seriously. It was always just a hobby. Uh, I, I liked it, but I'd never thought, oh, I could turn this into a job. People make money out of this, right? No, I read books. Of course I read books, but it almost seemed like another world like it was someone else's life that there was no chance that I could ever be that thing it didn't matter what I did it was just it was just not a possibility it was fact that I was never going to be a writer and yet when I got when it came time to put together my preferences for university my list was something along the lines of medicine at one uni medicine another uni biomedical science because of course you need another way to get into medicine uh, and then what at the time I believe was called communications, which is essentially a writing course, um, writing for, for different purposes, but writing nonetheless. So it was, it was quite high up. It was my backup plan, but I'd never, again, it was almost, it, I'd, I'd essentially left it up to someone else. I left it up to fate. I left it up to universities to decide for me to basically say, okay, well, you're not good enough to do medicine. You're not smart enough. So go do this thing that you actually would enjoy. Um, Because again, I never took it seriously. And I put it down there as a joke, almost like, oh yeah, Yeah, well, if if nothing else, I can kind of do this. This makes sense, right? So I got through my first six months of med school and of course, and I did okay. But uh, as my husband quite frequently tells me, what happens is that when you have a bell curve of students, um, you know, you, then you take all the students at the top end of the bell curve and stick them on a new bell curve, automatically going to be mediocre because when you put them side by side by a, next to a bunch of other highly intense, really intelligent, hardworking people, you're going to feel less than even though you are still at the top end of the bell curve. So at the six month mark, I burned out. I burned out really hard. I just, I was, you know, nearly failing everything I was doing. Just, I could not, I could not succeed. Um, and the gradings weren't, weren't scaled. They were just raw. If you're good, you're good. If you're not, you're not. And, and that perpetu- that continued throughout my entire medical school career. I just could not motivate myself to do more than I was or for whatever reason, whatever I was learning just couldn't, it didn't stick. Um, but I, I kept going. I kept going because I thought, you know what? This is just what I'm going to do, right? I've, I've invested all this time and all this money. And I look back and I, th- I do remember that there were many, many moments in my medical school time when I thought to myself, what am I doing? Like, why am I here? I don't, I don't know if I want to do this. And then I would always say to myself, well, people expect this of you. This is what you're going to do. And you spent all this time now, you might as well finish it. So, I got to the end of my medical career. I got my last year, actually. In my last year, I did some electives. So, I got to choose um, sort of one, uh, sort of six-week placements in different places. And I essentially used them all 
to just not be at home. <laughs> I went uh, to Sydney for six weeks. I was in the country for six weeks. And it was all just opportunities for me to go somewhere else or do something else. It was never about being inspired or seeking out different horizons. It was just what can I use this for in order to achieve my other goals? So in in medicine, there are three different branches that you can choose from uh, to decide what specialty you land in. You don't need to you don't need to decide anything until about maybe the third or fourth year. But the three branches are what we call medical. So that's you know anything that doesn't involve a scalpel, uh, surgical as is obvious, and then other. Within other, you have uh, radiology. So that's X-rays, pathology, which is blood tests, and then GP. And I decided within my first year of, within my intern year, which is the first year out, that I hated being in hospitals. Just couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand the pressure. I couldn't stand the lifestyle, the hours. I I wanted absolutely none of it. So that automatically eliminates two out of the three branches. Um, And then I decided I didn't want to be in a dark room and, and become a vampire like a radiologist. I wasn't a particular fan of staring at blood and various other bodily fluids all day. And as I said, being a GP was almost automatic. So I'd, I'd managed to justify it to myself. I thought, okay, within within the field that I'm doing right now, um, GP still makes the most sense. Uh, and that's the thing. This, this sort of pattern emerged, which I only see now and I didn't see at the time, which is that all the decisions I've made for my career, and my not my life, but in my career, have been the best of a list of bad options. It was never because I want to do it, because I love it, because I'm passionate about it, because it fascinates me. It was always, well, this is the least worst option. Let's just choose that and go from there. It's, it means that I haven't wasted my degree. It means I haven't wasted five years of my life. Um, or, you know, at, at the point when I entered GP, seven years of my life, having done a few years in hospitals. Um, it just, it, it's the thing that made the most sense without necessarily being the thing that I wanted to do. Um, and then... I entered, uh, I became a GP and I was starting to get some pretty decent feedback. I was, I was, it was being reinforced that, hey, you know, you're a pretty good GP, you, you know, you, you know how to talk to a patient, you know how to present well. Um, then I landed in mental health because for some reason I just had this knack for, um, for showing empathy to people, giving them an opportunity to, to talk and be heard particularly. And so I, I fell into that too. I just went, okay, well, this seems to be something I can pursue. Let's give it a shot. But working in mental health is draining. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. Having a mental illness is far, far worse. I'm not comparing my experience to someone who is in the midst of depression or anxiety or schizophrenia or bipolar. But trying to trying to help everyone, being the kind of person that I am, which is I like solutions. I like things to be fixed and solved and to go well. Entering the field of mental health was really possibly the the, the, the worst specialty I could have chosen for, for my kind of mentality because mental health is constant. You know, once you have anxiety, once you have depression, you're never without it. It's always there. It'll settle down for a little bit. It'll go into the background for a while. You might not notice it for a bit, but when the moment comes when when you know your life goes wrong or something something happens that you didn't expect, it'll always be there. 
and it's disheartening. It's disheartening to watch people have to suffer through that every time. Uh, and you just you just want you just want them to be happy, and that's it. It yeah, it's it's a it's a hard life. It's a hard life to 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 feel responsible for that and feel like you're getting nowhere. So then the other part was that I, the other part of my life that made me realize I was sort of, I was nitpicking, I guess, was that I changed clinics uh, twice in my career. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but I changed clinics twice in a period of six years. That's really frequent. Most people don't change that rapidly. Most people stick around with a with a clinic for, you know, five to ten years, and if they like the arrangement, they might they'll only move on if you know brighter opportunities arise, which doesn't always happen. But every two years, uh, so, so, uh, so you know, I, I changed clinics twice. The first time it happened because I thought that the the way the clinic was being managed wasn't working. Um, various factors had led to the clinic losing patients and my feeling was that it, it made me feel insecure about my income. Then the next clinic, unfortunately, they had a pretty, uh, they a pretty difficult, they, they had a pretty nasty culture uh, and I, I left them under a pretty dark cloud. Um, so I got to my final clinic, the one I'm working at now, and it was great. The, the boss was amazing. The people were amazing. I thought it was fairly well run. They had, you know, good aspirations. And I still hated it. I, I still, at the two-year mark, I still thought, I, I want to leave. Uh, all I can see is the, the negative and all I can see are the, are the bad things. And even though I knew there were good things there, I just could not look past it. And it made me realize that my dissatisfaction had nothing to do with the clinic. It wasn't about the external factors. It wasn't about other people. It was about me. I was really unhappy. Uh, and I had a decision to make. I had to decide for myself, well, what do I want for my life? Does, does the financial security matter? Is it everything? And don't get me wrong, having money it's it's always easy for people who have money to say oh you know it would, would be so bad to have less money i get that i do um it's not that it's more that you get happiness from different things you know uh, so i had to decide for myself where do i want to get my happiness from part of it also came from the fact that i once again stumbled upon a job so, uh, my best friend, Reese, who was also the very first guest on this podcast, he uh, offered me a job working with his organization, uh, helping with adults with intellectual disabilities. And I went into it thinking, it seems okay. My, I have two kids who are eight and adorable, and they both have autism. Uh, mild, but it's there. And it's, it's, a, it's something that I always have to think about with every decision I make is how things are going to affect my kids and how it's going to affect them, uh, how, whether or not it's going to set off their autism. Um, and so I thought, well, okay, I have a passing interest in this thing. So in this, this industry, let's, let's try this job and see what happens. And it turns out I actually really liked it. And I thought to myself, is this what it feels like to love your job? And I made an even worse realization, which is that I'd never felt that. Like I'd never, 
I'd never felt a love of what I was doing until I found this other job. And then to compound that, I, I once again, accidentally stumbled into education. So I, I was always kind of interested in teaching GP registrars as GP trainees. Um, and I happened to email the right person who then offered me a casual job. Uh, which involves me going out to visit GP registrars and, and seeing how they're performing and offering advice where it's necessary. And once again, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed what I was doing. And it just made me think, why am I spending my days doing something that makes me miserable? And it's hard because the problem was, and this is a stupid problem to have, I was making a difference. I had... Uh, at this, at my current clinic, I have some really loyal patients who I've done a lot of good for, at least I'd like to think I do a lot of good for, um, who really like me and find me to be helpful and informative. And so you get all this positive feedback and you get told, well, you're really good at this job. And then I had to come to, I had to sort of balance out, well, is that enough? Is it enough to be good at your job? Is it enough to be good at your job? Is it, is it enough a justification to be good at your job to stay in it? Because being good at something is not the same as loving what you're doing. People can love what they do and be terrible at it. And people can hate what they do and be really awesome at it. But they're two very different skills and two very different emotions. And that's what I had to decide. I'm, and I'm still deciding that now. I still don't. I, I, uh, you know, my, my current plan is that I'm going to take some time away from being a GP and figure out what it is I truly want. I'd always had this fear, which I, I realize now has a basis. I'd always had this fear that if I took too much time away from general practice, I'd never want to go back. Now, at the time, when I, when I thought these things, and this was years and years and years ago, I always thought to myself, oh, that's because it's just because you enjoy holidays too much. Yeah, that's all it is. You just, I just enjoy doing nothing for a while. That's, that's the motivation behind it. And now I look back and I think, actually, it's because you hate your job. <laughs> that's why you don't want to go back because you don't like it. And to realize that, what would it be? Maybe 17 years into investing time and energy and money into a career it's a tough realization to have and it's a tough thing to think what could i have done if i had been motivated or inspired or educated in a way that was not about security not about a refugee mentality but more about what it is that'll make me happy. And it's, as a parent, and I understand this now, that they always tell you, you'll, you'll understand your parents better when you become a parent. And it's really annoying when you hear it, but actually it's very true. So sorry to everyone out there who hasn't come to that realization yet, but you will. Uh, but being a parent, all you want for your kids is to be happy. And you can only really, your, your first instinct is to 
when you make your choices is to base it off your own experiences because you only know what you know. You only know what you experience. You can hear all these stories from other people, but there's so much variation. So you can only base it, your decisions on what your experiences are. And so my parents' experiences, I realize now, were based off a feeling of insecurity. They really wanted me to not feel what they felt, that feeling of loss and the feeling of, of having nothing or, or not feeling secure. And they gave me that. They gave me this wonderful amount of security through their hard work and their dedication, and I'm grateful for that. But that's not what makes me happy. But And they thought they were doing the right thing. They did. I hear that, I believe it, and I, I don't I don't doubt it, but it wasn't the thing I needed. And so I have to keep asking myself for my kids, well, okay, I know what would make me happy, but what would make them happy? And I think what I would have wanted to know, what I would have wanted to know when I was younger, whether it be in my teens or in my uni days, is that... Yes, you have the security. Here is security for you. And we want you to create some security for yourself. But that can't be all of it. It can't be just about security. Because once you have security, what, what security is, is it's a foundation from which you can then extend yourself. It is home base. It is the place that from which you can explore the world and explore yourself, explore your options, but you can always come back to it. That's what security is. Security isn't about every day being exactly the same. It, it, security isn't about your life being a re, every day being a repetition of the previous one uh, or, or being certain about everything that is going to happen to you because life is never certain. Uh, I, I tell all my patients who have anxiety, I tell them this, that one of the hardest truths to accept is that life is completely uncertain. And fighting that, trying to control it by reading people's minds or predicting the future or thinking that everything is always or never or all or nothing is neither healthy nor realistic. But that's what I did. Uh, that's what my parents wanted. They, they're like, well, you either are a doctor, which will then guarantee your security, um, or you're nothing. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's hard. It's hard to think about that. It's hard to think. Well, it's, it's hard to... Uh, it's sad. It's sad to think that as as well-intentioned as it all was, it led me to a point now where I am... I'm in a position where I have to make some hard decisions. Some decisions that uh, not only affect me, but affect people that I really love. Uh, I have to think about my husband and I have to think about my kids. And I love them and I want them to be happy. But I also want me to be happy. So how do you balance that? How do you How do you decide how much happiness is okay for you to have how much happiness are you allowed to allot yourself and i I don't have the answer to that yet uh maybe i never will maybe no one ever does uh maybe i just have to be more content i don't know i don't know how you achieve contentment to be honest Uh, it's uh i know what happiness feels like i know what sadness feels like contentment kind of feels like nothing and i don't know if I want to lead you to light a life of nothing necessarily. 
So I've gone back to writing. I wrote a book, which was okay. It was an okay book. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't great. I um I sent it to uh to some beta readers and some publishers, and I got back feedback that yeah, it was alright. <laughs> you know, it it, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't great. There were some problems. There were some things that could be fixed. Uh, and then. But the thing I, I I've always the thing I've always loved from from very early on uh, was is is and was TV, and that's essentially because I was raised by a television. My parents, as I said, worked very hard. Uh, every day they worked from roughly seven a.m. to seven p.m. Monday to Friday on Saturday seven a.m. to five p.m. and Sundays they took off. But Sundays was always, you know. It was the things you had to do. It was church and it was shopping, grocery shopping. It was all the all the tasks. It was never about leisure. It was about just doing things. But it was it was a very common occurrence that I would get home from school and there'd be no one there to look after me. No, sorry, that's a lie. I had my grandma who would look after me, but she only spoke Vietnamese. And as I said, I was raised by a television, so I didn't speak much Vietnamese. Um but I've always loved television. Uh, of the variety and the things I learned from television are um, are wide and and influential. I from a, I have I for those of you who are about my age, you may recall a TV show called Sex Life uh, back in the nineties, uh, hosted by Toddy Goldsmith, and that's where I learned about sex. Uh, shouldn't have did, uh, but hey, that's what you get from being an unmonitored kid. And anyway, so, so I've always loved TV, but I've always loved the ins and outs of TV. I've always loved the idea about programming TV, why you schedule certain shows at a certain time slot, how you choose the shows that you produce and um, all the intricacies. I love TV ratings. I love knowing what's popular and what's not and why one thing resonates and why things don't, why some things fade out and some things persist. It, all, all those questions are really, really interesting to me. And I love, I love writing people's, I love people's stories. I love the lives that people lead. I love knowing about what, what their thought processes were that led to the decisions that they made, what outcomes the decisions had, the interplay of, of, of them with the, the people they are, that are around them. It's all really interesting. And so I've then moved on to screenwriting to writing a TV pilot, multiple TV pilots actually. And a lot of the feedback I'm getting there is positive as well. It's all like, you don't, you know, that your dialogue is good and, um, you know, the, the idea is interesting enough. Of course, there are still things I have to fix because I don't have a formal education. So structuring a script I'm no good at and knowing how to describe a scene I'm no good at. And I accept that. And I, I, I understand that that that's where an education is important, but if I wanted to pursue this completely, that means I'd have to take, I'd have to study. And I understand that. I understand why you need to dedicate the time to learn and why you need to have the experience in the field. But I'm 34. I've got eight-year-old twin boys and I've got a husband who doesn't, who's, well, doesn't work. I say, I say that like it's a negative thing. He looks after my kids with autism and he does a very good job of it, but he, he wants and needs to be there, which I completely respect. But where does that leave me? I can't just decide, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to take this unpaid internship for a year over at, you know, Film Victoria 
yeah, that'll work. Cool. You know, I have a mortgage and I have various other expenses, but just because I, I, this is my dream, I therefore have the right to just work an unpaid job for a year. Like that, that's, that's not how that works. Even my husband who, who wants to be a psychologist, it, he did teaching for years and he enjoyed the teaching itself, but the manage, the management part of it and the contracts and all that, that was a part he didn't like. So he, he gave that up. He wants to be a psychologist. That's five years postgraduate diploma. So it actually takes, and that's postgraduate. So that means that if he did undergraduate, he might need to take seven years. So it takes two more years to be a psychologist than it does to be a doctor. Now that's insane. Like that just that that doesn't make any sense at all, um, but it is the reality. He he has to think about these things too. He can't just pick up a, you know a full time study load and look after kids while I like it. Just it these are questions to ask ourselves, and so it's hard. It's it's hard. How do you how do you balance it all? There are plenty of people out there who do juggle it, who do find the time and 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 take away their own leisure and pleasure time in order to facilitate their dreams. But how much do you have to give up? How much do you have to sacrifice? How much do you have to want it to make it work? And I don't know because I love me some relaxation. I do. We all do. I love me some downtime. I love watching TV because again, TV is my passion. So, does that mean that for a few years, how, for, for an unknown number of years, I have to be miserable or I have to be overworked or I have to be, I have to take the negatives in order to maybe possibly achieve my dream? I mean, there are thousands, I imagine, thousands of aspiring artists and screenwriters out there. They, they you know, it's not a finite amount of time. In medicine, there is a path. You do your five-year degree or six or seven or eight, depending on which course you do. You do your degree, you get out there, you do an internship, a residency, and you just you follow the path that is laid out before you, that, that has been trodden before you. In the creative arts, who the hell knows? It, it, it's so much of it is luck. It's the right people, meeting the right people and being in the right circumstances and... I can't afford that. I can't afford that uncertainty. But these, but I want to try because I love it. Uh, these are very polar opposite, but very strong feelings I have. And I don't, every day I, I switch back and forth. I go back and forth between what I want and, oh no, between what I want, because I want all of it. <laughs> If I had clones of myself or if I could have more time in the day, I'd take it because if it meant I could do more of what I wanted to do, not because I had to, not because it made sense, but because I wanted to do it, I would take it. But that's not reality. It's, it's, not, it's not the life we live in. It's not the world we live in. So what do you do then? And so all of this comes back to this podcast I, I had this, I actually had the idea to do this podcast, probably, I probably had it for, for a few years as a, as a very small little twinkling light in the back of my brain. And when 
I started having my rolling revelation about my life and my career. Uh, I had this, this burning desire to ask the question, how do people end up where they are? And I just decided to do it. I was lucky enough to know someone who knew someone who knew someone. And I decided I'd do it. And even to this day, I have to just keep asking myself, what is the purpose? Because that's what I was raised to think. What is the purpose? Why are you doing this thing? What is it leading you towards? Um, and sure, I'd love it if it led to some sort of screenwriting career. How that happens, I don't know. Um, that would be nice. But if I can't do that, if you know, can I do it just for the pleasure? Well, yeah, sure. The way it was described to me once was if I liked golf, not that I like golf, I hate golf. Um, to all of you who like golf, cool, good for you, not my thing. If I liked golf, I would be investing money in clubs and a bag and a golf, you know, memberships. And I wouldn't think, oh, what am I getting out of this, this golf hobby? Well, you know, what does it matter? Uh, but with something that has the potential <laughs> to make money, I, it, it's always a question that pops in the back of my mind. And I have to keep reminding myself that I want to do this for two reasons. One, because I enjoy it, because it answers a lot of questions for me that I have about what do other people do? What, what, other, what other lives do people lead? How do they come to decisions they make? But also because I want to help people, because I want to make someone else's life that little bit easier so that they don't have to ask themselves this question, so they don't have to go through this journey if it's avoidable. I mean, sometimes we do have to experience these things. We just have to do it to know and to learn about ourselves. I, I get that. But if I can help out someone at any point in their lives, whether you're a teenager, you're a uni student, or whether you're like me and you've reached a point in your career where you thought, you know what, I'm done. Like, I'm ready to go. Give me something else. I want... I want to be able to help someone else. I mean, maybe that's the part of me I keep, uh, the, the part of me that I, I want to make sure I keep meeting is that even if I'm not working as a GP, working in mental health, I still want to help people. Um, and so I have to, but again, you can't talk into the wind. If people aren't listening, there's nothing to be heard, you know? So that's what I have to keep reminding myself. That this, there is a purpose to doing this that is beyond self-promotion, that is beyond achieving my personal goal. And maybe, maybe it'll help someone out there lead a life that is richer and more about love than about sense because they don't always match up. So that's it. That's my story. I've been rambling on for, I'm not sure how long, but it feels like quite a while. Um, thanks for sticking it out. I appreciate it. You, know, you didn't get the luxury of a back and forth and some random humorous responses, but you, you listen to me and I'm, I'm grateful. Uh, this is the last episode of the season. So uh, we'll be taking a few months off just to recoup and and figure out what the next step is and ponder some more of life's big philosophical questions but we'll be back in 2020 with more episodes and more wonderful beautiful fascinating guests so keep an eye out for us i'll keep 
putting up new posts and little snippets of shows. But again, if you can help me out, I know part of my job is here to, to bring you wisdom and entertainment. But if you can help me out, if you know people who know people, if you can connect me in the right way, and if, if you can provide me an opportunity that I wouldn't have had otherwise, I'll be really grateful. So thanks, listeners. Uh, have a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, whatever you celebrate. See you in 2020. And remember, there are no small jobs, only jobs you haven't discovered yet.